For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been moving along, and we've spent several weeks in what's called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is hours away from being handed over to the authorities, brutally beaten, whipped, mocked, and then crucified. And we've talked a lot about how he spent the last few hours that he had that evening doing really concentrated teaching with his disciples, explaining to them what's going to happen, and also how their role is going to change and how he wants them to carry on the work um, after he is killed, resurrected, and then ascended, that he's going to work through them in a new dynamic, but they're going to be his ambassadors. So he focuses in on the mission. He says, guys, this is about love. This is about people understanding God. This is about people needing to understand that they can have a relationship with God, but they have to accept his forgiveness. They have to, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And God's going to take the punishment that everyone deserves and pour it out on me. But people need to know this and they need to know that they can be saved through the work that I'm going to do. And you need to know, he says, that I'm the source of your spiritual power. As you go forward to do this work, you need to depend on me. You need to connect with me. I'm like the vine and you're the branches that as you connect with me, I'll give you what you need to carry on and do this work. And then last week, we got to look in on this lengthy prayer where Jesus the Son speaks to the Father about really us about his disciples and about future generations of believers who would come to know him through their faithful work. And we spent some time studying and thinking through this sort of incredible window into God's relationship with himself. And that ends at the end of John 17 and verse 25. He says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So he kind of finishes that up again with this core mission. Let them have unity like we have unity. Let them have love like we have love. And let the world benefit from their understanding of who you are through me so that people will know that love is the mission. That's what this is about. People knowing, God, that you love them and that they can know you through me. And so we read in John 18 that when he had spoken these words, he went forth with the disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And so we are in a known area here. We're in Jerusalem. And um, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Israel to spend some time in Jerusalem, I highly recommend it. It's an amazing place to be. This is just a satellite image of the area of Jerusalem today, not in Jesus' time. They didn't have satellite imagery then. But uh, this is what it looks like. And, I mean, it's incredibly small. It's surprisingly, shockingly small. The entire nation of Israel is like, take like a a 50-mile wide swath from here to Cleveland. That's Israel, right? 
And so Jerusalem is this tightly packed area. And there are things that we know for sure about some of the areas that are going to be mentioned and that have been mentioned here. Some we don't know at all, and others we kind of know because tradition has handed it down over the years. Uh, And I'm talking about hundreds, if not thousands of years, tradition has passed it down. But, you know, that's one of the things you get in an area like this is, you know, everybody wants to mark the place where this happened. And so you kind of want to look for archaeological evidence and, and proof for where things are going down. But we do know everything we're talking about happened in this area. That area in the upper right is where the Temple Mount would have been. This is the traditional area where the Last Supper would have happened. And so you can go there and they're like, this is the place. And you're like, okay, well, it had to be somewhere. We know it was, you know, in this area, you know, there's not a lot of archaeology. They're not like, you know, archaeologists dusting off the bread and the wine that was used, you know. Uh, But this is where they think, this is where tradition holds that the Last Supper took place. Now there, that little dark patch that I just highlighted there, that's the Kidron Valley. We know where that is. It's still there, right? And so they're, he says they're going over and across the Kidron Valley to this garden and other passages. And later on, it tells us this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's interesting, this shocked me when I went there. I was like, they were like, I'm like, where are we going? And they're like, Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm like, Really? Like, is that one of those traditional places? And they're like, no, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's still there, and it still has olive trees in it that are over 2,000 years old. And you're like, what? Olive trees do not live 2,000 years old. Wikipedia, yeah, they do. <laughs> so you go to the garden, right? And you're like, like, you know, you're looking around, and you're like, this could have been like a sapling when Jesus walked through and prayed, and this is where he prays to God, and you know, it says that blood was pouring out uh, like sweat, and he was calling out to God, is this what we need to do? Are we sure that I have to go to the cross? Not your will, but my will be done. And you can go there and see that. Of course, they built a church there. Uh, that's actually a little less cool, if you ask me. I like the trees and that scene. Um, I took this picture when we were there, It says, it was a sign on the church that said, please, no explanations inside the church. I thought that was kind of weird. Churches really should be places where explanations happen. Some of us make a living doing that. Uh, But (laughs) uh, I think it was about tourists, not so much hopefully about learning about the Bible. But anyway, Garden of Gethsemane, real place, still there, can go there can experience that. And that's where they were headed in our passage. And while they were there, we read, Judas, also who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas is the one who knows Jesus' habits, where he's going to be. And he's like, listen, they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane and last night, I guarantee it. And they show up, he leads them there. And this is where, this is recorded in different gospels. And we get not contradictory, but like different emphases and different accounts where Jesus comes and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter brings out a sword and cuts off one of the guy's ears. And one of the accounts, Jesus heals the guy and he's like, look, it's not time to fight, it's time to go. 
So we read that the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus in the garden and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now we're getting a little weird. Okay, I can understand why we would take Jesus to the high priest, but why the father-in-law of the high priest? That's kind of strange. And if you read through the text and you look at what's going on, you find some interesting things. Um, We'll talk about that in a minute. Caiaphas and Annas, Annas is the father-in-law, Caiaphas is the high priest, but there's some interesting historical background as to why they might take him to the father-in-law of the high priest first. But anyway, they're there, and this is where some of, a couple of the betrayals where Peter denies Christ, John 18, 15, says Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now that's odd too, because they said they were going to Annas' house and Caiaphas was the high priest, yet now they're talking like Annas is the high priest. Why is that? Then a slave girl who had kept the door said to Peter, you're one of this guy's disciples, aren't you? And Peter said, I am not. That is not me. So Jesus then hangs out, talks with Annas. Annas is just asking him questions. Jesus isn't talking. He's not interested. He's not defending himself. Annas gets fed up and says, take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas, the high priest, who is the father-in-law of the high priest, says, Take, take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Hmm. Okay. So they john over there. Caiaphas's house is a place you can visit. Again, it's tradition that this is Caiaphas's house. But you can go there. It's a short distance away. And they're moving around. So we read in John 18, 28. It says, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas. You know, he stands before Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas says, you know, uh, you're accused of blasphemy. What do you say for yourself? And he says, nothing. I'm not defending myself. And he gets upset, and they ship him off because they're planning on killing him, and they don't have the authority. Israel is an occupied nation by the Romans, and the Romans will let them have their own courts and do some of their own things, but they can't put anyone to death without Roman permission. So they're like, okay, ship him off and send him to Pilate. So we read in verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but eat the Passover. See, this is, again, the legalistic Pharisaic thinking of the praetorium, that's where the Pilate and all the Gentiles and all the Romans are. They're filthy people. We can't come near them. We have the big feast of the Passover coming up. So all the chief priests and all the Pharisees kind of stay outside and send Jesus in with the claim that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's a blasphemer and needs to be put to death. So they take a jaunt over there. He talks to Pilate for a little bit, and then John doesn't record this, but Luke does. Luke tells us in Luke 23 that after talking with Pilate for a short time, uh, Pilate's not really wanting to get wrapped up in this. This seems to him like a very local, political, you know, religious thing that doesn't really involve Rome. And he's trying to think, who can I dish this off on? And it turns out Herod, who's technically one of the rulers of the Jewish people. He's a puppet under Rome, but he's in town. 
And so he says in verse 7, when he learned he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. So they go to Pilate from Pilate's praetorium over to Herod's house. They're with Herod for a very short time. Herod's very excited to meet Jesus. This is a cool, I've heard all about you, and I want to see you do some stuff. And Jesus is like, I'm not talking to you either. And so Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. See, Herod's thing was he wanted to see something cool. Jesus wasn't going to play along, and he's like, well, let's, uh, let's beat him and mock him and send him back to Pilate. Let's make Pilate deal with him. Nobody wants the responsibility here. The chief priests want the Romans to do it. Roman, the Romans want Herod to do it. Herod's like, no, I want Pilate to do it. Nobody wants to get involved because they know these are false charges. That Jesus has done nothing wrong, but there's these religious rulers gathering a mob together saying that, they, that this man needs to be killed. So back to John 19, verse 17, it says, they took Jesus back to Pilate, and he went out from Pilate bearing his cross to the place called, to the, to the, place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. This was the place where crucifixions were happening. It took place outside of the walls of Jerusalem. We know where the old walls are, and so we have a pretty good idea of what area this would be. And so they move along from Pilate out to the area of Golgotha to have Jesus crucified. And that is traditionally at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, where it has been traditionally believed that Jesus was crucified. That's where Calvary is. Um, but we don't really know for sure. Interestingly, if you go there, there's a, an interesting exhibit there called a garden tomb, which they don't claim is Jesus's actual tomb, but it's a tomb in a garden very much like what would have been Jesus's tomb. And if you go there, right outside of it is a thing that looks like this. That's a picture I took. And I was like standing there and I was like, is that Golgotha? And they were like, no, no, no. It's just a weird skull looking thing. And I'm like, but this is the area where it would have happened, right? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and how long has that looked like that? And they're like, as long as anybody can remember. And I'm like, hmm. I think that it looks like it might be the place of the skull, just wondering. And they're like, do you want to start a war? It's at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's where it happened. And I'm like, I think it maybe it happened by that bus station over there. <laughs> oh, no. Well, anyway, I'm not claiming that that's Golgotha. I just thought it was weird. Saw it. Was like, huh, we're in the spot where that would be. That looks like the place of the skull to me. But, you know, who knows if it looked that way 2,000 years ago. So... Let's take a look here and let's get a little deeper. We've covered the geography and, and the action of what's happening here. But let's get a little deeper into the players. We have Judas. We have Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. Somehow both together. You can only have one high priest, but they're both called the high priest. You have Pilate, you have Herod, and you have the disciples. These are sort of the actors who are experiencing and reacting to Jesus being arrested and brought before men for his trial. 
Judas is a very interesting character. We know a lot about him. Uh, he was one of the 12. So he had been with Jesus from the beginning. He'd spent at least three years with Jesus. He had been there for all the miracles, all the things, right? That if you study through the book of John, Jesus is raising people from the dead. He's walking on water. He's turning water into wine. He's making blind men see. He's doing all this stuff. And Judas has a front row seat for all the action. And yet, he does not go along with what it is that Jesus wants to do. Now, one of the things that historians have questioned over the years is, what is this Iscariot? You know, there's, there's, Judas was not an uncommon name. It's been a little less common since Judas did the Judas thing. But back then, it was a very common name. It's like, you know, there just aren't that many Judases around. And not many Benedicts either, you know? Anyway... Why is he called the Iscariot, Judas the Iscariot? That is not a last name. That is to differentiate him from another Judas who was around and was not that one. What does Iscariot mean? Well, there's a couple of options. Is is sometimes used as like a prefix for it's like of, so he could, could be of Cariot. And that could be several towns that were in Israel at that time. So it could be Judas of, of Cariot. Um, another one that's been very popular for many years, though, is this idea that he was a Sakari. The Sakari uh, were a splinter group of Jewish zealots who, in the decades preceding Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD, he heavily opposed the Roman occupation of Judea and attempted to expel them and their sympathizers from the area. The Sakari carried sikai, or small daggers, concealed in their cloaks at public gatherings. They pulled out these daggers to attack Romans and Hebrew Roman sympathizers, like blending into the crowd after the deed to escape detection. So if you've ever heard that Judas was a zealot, this is the theory behind this would be he was is of the sikari, meaning that he was aligned with a political group who was very adamant about getting the Romans out of Israel. And they were kind of a guerrilla war uh, assassins who would go into big crowded areas, stab a Roman, and then run away, all in the name of getting the Jewish people back in charge of Israel. That's what the Zealot Party was really all about. They were believers that only God and the Jewish people should be in power over Israel. And that Judas may very well have been from this background and been looking at Jesus, who says he's the Messiah, as the political savior of Israel. And that is attractive for several reasons, because as time goes on, we see that Judas is not really that concerned with what Jesus is up to. Jesus does things like, they say, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God. That would have been a very unsatisfying answer to a zealot who would have wanted Jesus to say, no, don't pay your taxes. Stand up, O people of Israel. He wanted Jesus to be a military conqueror, a leader, a revolutionary, political revolutionary. And as Jesus it becomes more and more clear that that's not what he's going to do. He's riding into town on a donkey. He's coming to talk about forgiveness and love and mercy and compassion. One theory would be that Judas is looking at this and he's saying, I've backed the wrong guy. 
He's not into what I thought he was into. So he starts pilfering the money. We know that from John 12. And finally, he sells Jesus out to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. That's Judas. He was following Jesus, whether he was a zealot or not. It's clear that he was following Jesus for personal gain. And he was disappointed with the results and decided he was just going to get what he could as this guy apparently was headed for the cross. Annas and Caiaphas, we put them together because they're kind of treated together. It says that they're both the high priest, but you can only have one high priest serving at any particular time. We know from the, 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 the text that Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and we know from history that Caiaphas was indeed the high priest during this period of Jesus' life. What's interesting is, as you look at this and you look at passages, Luke puts it this way in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This would have been much earlier when Jesus was just being born or just before that. And so how do you have two high priests? Well, what's interesting is if you dig into the background and the history of this, Josephus, not a Christian, but a, a well-known, well-established Jewish historian, describes how Annas was this very powerful, very influential high priest. Now, remember, the Romans wanted puppets. They didn't want very influential, very powerful high priests. And so they forced Annas out of the high priesthood. And all the religious rulers were sort of thumbing their noses at the Romans. And all they did was made all, everybody who was related to Annas, every male, got a turn at being high priest, including his son-in-law. And so Annas was not the high priest in order to the law, but according to popular vote and opinion, they kept him in power by electing his children and his son-in-law. Now, that's not in Scripture, but you read that and you wonder, why are they confused? Do they not know who the high priest is? And it's actually, there's a very good reason why it would be talked about this way that feeds into our confidence in the historical accuracy of this text. Anyway, Annas is forced out. Caiaphas is in. He continues on. Now, these guys represent the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling authorities, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day who Jesus has had so much trouble with. And it's interesting to note that they were initially very impressed with Jesus' teaching. Early on, when Jesus was just a guy who was showing up at the synagogues and starting to teach, we read things like this from Luke 4, 31 and 32. It says, he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. When he would stand up in the, in the uh, temple or um, among a group in order to teach the Old Testament, he would do so with a knowledge and authority as a carpenter's son, a relatively uneducated man that struck people with the power of the words and the truth of what he was saying. But as time went on, he began to critique the Pharisees, to critique the religious rulers, began to explain to people that it was not about following rituals, it was not about washings, it was not about you know, how much you give, it wasn't about how many days a week you went to church, it was about 
Are you humble before God? Are you recognizing that you have a moral problem before God? And are you wanting forgiveness? And this attacked and eroded and began to crumble the power and the authority of these rulers because they were the ones that controlled and benefited and profited from the entire system. And so as he began to attack the system, they felt that he was attacking them, and they very quickly began to change their mind about him. In Luke 22, too, we read the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. As Jesus started talking about the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God, and the unnecessary components of legalism, that the Pharisees were famous for, they realized he's gathering a big following. We've got to take him out. So they sought to use Jesus for their purposes once they found out for sure after testing and arguing with him for years that they couldn't get him on their side. They decided to kill him because they couldn't control him. Then we see... The next player, Herod Antipas. Herod is a name that comes up quite frequently in the New Testament. And you say, well, Herod, Herod was the one that had, you know, was trying to kill all the babies at the time of Jesus' birth. That was his dad, Herod the Great. He was great. I don't know why. Um, he was famous for having the, the firstborn males killed in uh, Bethlehem. This is his son, and the... the the fruit really doesn't fall far from the tree with Herod Antipas, says that Herod was very glad. So Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because he didn't want to be responsible for the judgment on him. And Herod was very glad for that. And when he saw Jesus coming, he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. So here's this powerful, wealthy, you know, highly uh, established socialite who's thinking, oh my God, Jesus is coming to talk to me. Get everybody I know over here. Jesus is coming. He's going to be the life of the party. And I want everyone to see that I, I get to have some control over who Jesus, what happens with Jesus. And it says, and the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Jesus wouldn't play Herod's game. Herod wanted some social status. He wanted some uh, fame for himself and being involved in this story. He wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to see a show. And when none of that would happen, he settled with the opportunity of cruelly mocking, beating, and sending Jesus back to Pilate, dressed like a king, because after all, those were the charges against him. Pontius Pilate is an interesting character when we get into the details on him. So Jesus comes back after Herod, and we read in John 18, 33 and 38, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered. Jesus is talking to this guy, which is very interesting. He's not talking to the religious rulers. But this guy who does not have this religious background is asking him questions. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? 
Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? I don't understand what the, what the problem here is, but they're very mad at you, Jesus. And I, I want you to explain this to me. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. You admit that. And Jesus said, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. So he's laying out here the truth. He's actually, he's not defending himself. But he's answering, Herod's like, what, or Pilate's like, what is the problem? And what are you about? And what is this? And he's like, I'm, I'm the king. But my people don't recognize me. And they've rejected me. But I've come to tell people the truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Sort of a fascinating interaction, isn't it? This guy, without any of the religious background, any of this stuff, he really doesn't even understand. He's in this position of authority, but he doesn't even really understand Judaism all that well. He wants Herod to deal with it, and now it's back, and he's like, why, why is this a problem that they're making this claim? And Jesus says, this is about love, and this is about truth. And he has the cynical, I don't even know that truth exists. What is the truth? But he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to convict. So he goes back out and he says, I find no guilt in him. And we read in John 9, verse 6, so when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again. He's like going back and forth. The crowd's like, crucify! And he's like, what did you do? I, um, I am God, and I'm the king. Okay, but why should they kill you? Well, they shouldn't, but they are. Guys, why should we kill him? Crucify, crucify! So Pilate says to him again, you don't speak to me. Give me a reason to let you go. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? Or, have I, or I have the authority to crucify you? Stand up for yourself, man. Tell me what's going on. And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Oh. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And so do you see what they just did? They just squared off Pilate. Is he going to be loyal to Jesus or is he going to be loyal to Caesar? Because they connected. If Jesus claims to be a king, that puts him up and above over Caesar. And Pilate can't have that. So what Pilate really does is he puts career safety before morality. He clearly has a moral sense of this man should not be killed for his crimes. But he clearly won't stand up for what he believes is true because he's afraid of being punished himself. 
He doesn't seem to wish Jesus any particular harm, but he's definitely willing to go all the way and have him crucified if the social pressure is high enough, and it is. And it also seems that Pilate is more honest than some of the others in the sense of he doesn't really seem to believe that the evidence matters. He's saying, I don't even know that truth exists. I'm just trying to survive, and I'm just trying to succeed in what it is that my life is about, and you're in the way, Jesus, and so you're going to have to go so that I don't have to deal with the problems of these chief priests if we don't get rid of you. And so Pilate goes the path of least resistance. Finally, then, we have the disciples. The disciples, they've all been with Jesus for years. They've been following him. They've seen the evidence. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching. They've been uh, day and night with him, seeing the impact that he's had on people. But they are not prepared to suffer for him. Peter seems at first like he's ready to defend Jesus, but then later when they go to Annas' house and then Caiaphas' house, and he's asked, are you one of the disciples? He's like, no, no, no. The final time it says that with cursing he declared, I don't know this man. And Jesus had predicted to, to Peter and warned him that he will betray him three times. And it came about just in that way. Their attitude seems to be, God, I will follow you as long as X. I will follow you, Lord. I will devote my life to you. I will leave my fishing business. I will leave my family behind, and I will follow you to learn and grow and to believe. But there are certain requirements that I have. For Judas, those requirements are as long as you take me where I want to go. The thing that's most important to me is the political freedom of the Jewish people. And you're supposed to be the Messiah, so okay, I'll come along and I'll be dedicated to this as long as it's headed in this direction. As long as you champion my cause, as long as there's something in it for me, I will follow you, Jesus. But the moment it becomes clear that Jesus' agenda is his own agenda and not Judas's, Judas begins looking for outs. How can I cash out on this thing? For Peter, it seems to be pretty clear at this point his attitude is, is, I will follow you, Lord, as long as it doesn't get me arrested or killed, which seems a little bit more reasonable, right? Unless Jesus is God, unless he truly is God, come to save the human race. There are certain things that are so weighty, that are so important, that they're worth getting arrested and dying for. And if the all-powerful creator God of the universe comes and recruits you to be involved in the rescue mission of the human race, this seems like it would be at the top of the list of those kinds of things. And so we then are confronted with that question. Who do you say Jesus is? That's really the drama that John has set up here in this entire chapter. All these different people have examined the evidence. They've looked. They've seen Jesus teach. They've seen his miracles. And they've got reasons for believing the way that they do. And what conclusions do they come to? Is Jesus a threat to your way of life? Are you the ruler of your own destiny? Are you the one who decides right and wrong for you? Are you offended by the idea that Jesus says that God has opinions and thoughts about the way you should live your life? 
And are you willing to ignore him and suppress the evidence or ignore the evidence altogether rather than wrestle with the idea that you might be a creation and not a creator? That there could be something greater than yourself that you were made for, but that you have the free will to reject? Is Jesus for you a means to an end? Going to church makes me feel a little less guilty. Going to church gives me good contacts for my business. I like what it says about me that I'm somebody who goes and is religiously involved. I want my kids to have you know, a good moral fiber. Is Jesus someone worth following as long as it is safe? As long as it doesn't out me to others? As long as... I don't have come into conflict with people at work and in my neighborhood. As long as people don't think I'm weird, I'll follow Jesus. Or is Jesus the God of the universe who's worth suffering and dying for? What I'd call your attention to here is this is actually what we call a decision continuum. And many of us, many of us, myself included, started with Jesus was a threat to our way of life. If you go back to me when I'm 17 years old, that's the way I answer that question. Jesus, I was not interested because I wanted to live my life certain ways, and I knew through the grapevine, not through study on my own, that Jesus would be opposed to certain activities that I wanted to do, so therefore he was not God. And that's how I lived my life. Then there was this cute girl who was going to a Bible study, and he became a means to an end. It's like, oh, well, maybe I should uh, check out my spiritual self. (laughs) And I chased a girl into a Bible study. And for a few weeks, I was there, not because I was that into Jesus, but because there was a pretty girl who was. And then I came to faith. I saw evidence. I began to have conversations with people. I began to get questions answered. I began to see things from a different perspective. I thought I knew what the Bible and Christianity were all about, but it turns out I was totally wrong. I thought what most people think, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And that's what it was about. And I learned very quickly that that's not what it was about at all. It was about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no such thing as good people. There's people that are wonderfully made with incredible potential, but that we're all broken. And the way to God is not by being a good person. The way to God is by admitting that you're a bad person. And then accepting his love and his forgiveness in spite of the fact that you're in rebellion against him. And that was a radically different message. And I didn't buy the whole thing. I wasn't ready to radically change my life. I wasn't ready to suffer or die for Jesus Christ. I believed that I was a sinner and that Jesus had died and made it possible for me to have a connection with God. And that was a step. But do you see the steps? Jesus is a threat to my way of life. He's a means to an end. He's someone who I'm going to follow because it makes a certain amount of sense. I don't know how crazy or far I'm going to go with this thing. And I think I'm somewhere probably between those two things now on that decision continuum. Would I say the God of the universe is worth suffering and dying for? So far, yes. Have I suffered very much? Not at all. Certainly haven't died for it.
I think that as each year goes by, I become more convinced that God is real and willing to sacrifice more. He's never asked me to make a real sacrifice other than time and money and and things like that. He's never really asked me. I've not, to this point in my life, had to suffer greatly. And I can't tell you for sure until it happens what what I will do. But I want to be... I want to be all in. I hope that I'm all in. And I hope that I don't have to suffer to find out that I'm all in. (laughs) But I think I'm willing to try. And so whether you're Judas or whether you're a Pharisee or whether you're a disciple or whether you're all in, you know, I don't think that we can lay a label on ourselves necessarily that says I'm this or I'm that. We're all of that. And I think it's very interesting that we're given these examples and we, we make decisions on a daily basis all along this, continue, this, this decision continuum, even as believers. And the goal should be, the desire should be to operate on truth and to say, if called upon, my answer to God is yes because I trust him, because I've examined the evidence, and because I believe in him. That's a question I would throw out to the room to think about is, have you examined the evidence? If you're one that's like, Jesus is a threat to my way of life, I'm not interested, I'm here chasing a pretty girl. First of all, welcome, you're in good company. (laughs) Maybe you were dragged out by a child or, or a parent or a neighbor, and you thought, I'll just come this one time, and then maybe they'll leave me alone. I can tell you they won't. (laughs) Because we believe that this is the most important thing, and there is evidence. There's a lot of reasons to believe that there is something greater than ourselves, and that thing is the God of the Bible who has spoken and revealed some of the deep mysteries of the universe to us. Maybe you're here and you're looking for something that feels good, That's good because there is a lot to say for feelings and there's a lot to say for wanting to feel good. That's what we all want. We want relationships. We want friendships. We want community. We want to know. We want to believe that we're a good person and that we're doing something and that it's meaningful and that we're not just somebody who's wasting their time and wasting their life and being selfish. We want to be out there making a difference in the world and God offers us that. But if all you're in for is, I'm going to follow God as long as it feels good, the problem is, is that you're going to be confronted at some point with the truth. When the suffering comes, when the alienation comes, when the rejection from loved ones or the, the opportunities are diminished and your choices are diminished because you believe what you believe and because you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you feel ashamed and hurt and rejected, the thing that will get you through is not your feelings. It's the truth. What do you believe is true? And I'm not just talking about one point in your life where you'll come to a crossroads and you'll have to make that decision. I'm talking about many points in your life. Peter came to one of those points. Hey, you're one of his disciples. And he failed three times. But then he had more choices later. 
where he decided Jesus was worth suffering and dying for. And in fact, tradition holds, Peter died because he was a believer in the resurrected Jesus Christ. We all have to decide why do we, who do we think Jesus is and how far are we willing to go? And we've talked about it, but we haven't really gotten into evidence. And in two weeks, I'm going to come back and we're going to spend some time talking about the cross. And then the week after that, we're going to spend some time talking about the resurrection. And you'll see more of the kinds of evidence that I'm talking about then. But we'll wrap that up for tonight. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.